And when we spoke about it in the beginning, when God's people were finally freed from slavery and how it all of a sudden made me remember all the ways that I was freed in my life. Um, uh, I think, you know, in, in every uh, individual time, um, I was obviously really grateful and I thanked the Lord and, you know, gave him the credit. But when we were doing it, it just gave me this, you know, all of a sudden realization how the Lord has come through for me time and time again. And it was actually quite overwhelming. So, yeah, I think just for me in the future, which I wouldn't have done without this practice, just every time we do communion, I just remember all those ways that the Lord freed me. Um, he freed me from two depressive episodes. He freed me from anxiety. He freed me from a very unhealthy relationship. And not only that, but he led me into this amazing marriage that feels so undeserving with a God-fearing man. So it's been, it's been a huge testimony. Welcome to the Follow-Up Podcast. A place for conversations and ideas on how we follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. Follow is a community of learning and practice in the way of Jesus. And you can find out more about resources, events, and how to get involved by visiting www.wearefollower.com or finding us on your social media platform of choice. We hope you enjoy this episode with your host, Matthew Lewis. Welcome back to the Follower Podcast, everybody. So good to be in your ears, as always. And um, this is the third and final episode in our three-part series on communion. Uh, Just in case you're joining us right now, highly recommend you go back and listen to the first two episodes. We have done what we call a focus on the devotion or the practice of communion, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Um, and we've looked at uh, encounter with Jesus at the Lord's Supper, at the communion table, the, the role of remembrance through this practice as Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the, the image of the Passover lamb through the tradition of Passover that he repurposes for himself. And this week we're looking ahead at expectation as we anchor ourselves in the story of the marriage supper of the lamb. And so again, I, I take us through a bit of a 30,000 foot overview of a story, an unfolding story of the bride and the bridegroom and how this meal is is a meal and a practice that anchors us into a hope that changes everything about how we live in the present. Um, when we recorded this, I had a little bit of a cat allergy, so <laughs> I hope that you can forgive that. Apart from that, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Thanks for joining us. So we're looking at uh, the practice of communion. If you didn't know that, welcome. <laughs> uh, just to kind of give you a, a little recap, we're looking particularly at Acts 2, 42, we're looking at the early church, and we're looking at how the early church devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, they devoted themselves to prayer, and they devoted themselves to fellowship. And those four devotions uh, basically created an environment in which signs and wonders could be done, uh, in which justice flowed, uh, and in which people were added to the church daily being saved in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the overflow of this incredible community was really grounded in a foundation of practice and and simple devotion they devoted themselves to, right? Um, 
And one of those devotions, we're going to go through all four of those in the coming months and then see where the Lord takes us after that. But one of those devotions was the breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread was um, a key practice in the life of the early church that was kind of uh, Jesus repurposed Passover, which had always been in the, the story of Israel from the time of the Exodus and then was given to the nation of Israel as a feast that they would remember regularly, that would remind them of what they'd been saved from, uh, that they'd been rescued out of Egypt by this incredible God, and that as they continuously entered into that feast and other feasts and celebrations, that not only would they be liberated from Egypt, but that Egypt would be purged out of them. And then Jesus takes that Passover meal before he dies, and he repurposes the Passover meal uh, and gives it to the church. And he says, do this whenever you meet and eat and drink. This is my body and my blood broken for you, my blood in the new covenant. And so then the early church goes on to do that. And so, you know, there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And uh, you've got this new church that's now been formed by Jews from all over the region, speaking so many different languages that they needed to have the Holy Spirit empower the apostles to teach this word into community. And this early community, remember, they don't have a Bible. It's important to know that. Like, it's it's really important to think about that. They didn't have a Bible because they are the Bible, right? They are the book of Acts, um, number one. Number two, uh, a lot of people were illiterate. So it was an oral tradition and culture. And not everybody had a scroll, right? So the scrolls were in the temple, or you had to be very wealthy to have any kind of copy of that kind of thing. So their devotional life didn't look like what we would call Bible study or things like this. Their faith was buried in their community through lots of different things. And one of those things was this meal that was embodied theology, uh, powerful and transformational when we understand how people are shaped and formed. And so when we think about learning and practicing the way of Jesus, one of the things we want to look at is, well, how, how did the first followers of Jesus do it? Um, and what did Jesus command? <laughs> right. And what did Jesus model? And so we see Jesus commanding us to do this thing, and we see the early church practicing this thing, and then we see how profoundly that affected them. And so over the last three months, what we've tried to do is understand this practice, not only learn about it, but practice it from three fundamental angles. And so in the first month, we looked at, at the revelation of Jesus in the breaking of the bread. So you had these two followers of Jesus they are coming from Jerusalem. They dejected and downheartened and, and, and really disappointed. Jesus walks with them. They don't know it's him. Uh, he un unpacks the whole gospel according to all the scriptures because Jesus is the master teacher. And then uh, he's about to leave, and then they welcome him. They say, no, 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 come to our house. And then he breaks bread, and it says in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were open to see that it was Christ. And church tradition for a long time is actually pulled a lot from that story, and, and, and it points to what is possible in the breaking of the bread, that somehow it, the conviction, and again, you want to get into the deep weeds of this, if you're really interested, happy to have conversations, but there's different views on what happens um, in the breaking of the bread, in this thing called communion, or the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, or whatever you want to call it, um, but all of the views, no matter how you cut it, believe that something's happening at that table, something important is happening. And so there is a way that we can have a fresh revelation of Jesus in the breaking of the bread as we practice this and we can meet with him. So that was our first month and we learned and practiced that idea. Then last month, we looked back in time, we looked at the Passover and we looked at the first 
uh, liberation of Israel out of Egypt and this this uh, the spirit the spirit of death and the angel of death coming out of the, over the homes and the blood of Jesus or the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and how that was pointing forward to a sacrificial lamb that would be put on on the doorposts of our hearts and this new covenant that we now have in this blood and how this liberates us out of slavery and out of death um, into a, a journey toward the promised land and so much parallel and reference between the Red Sea, uh, the parting of the sea and passing through the sea and baptism and the journey through the wilderness and the Christian experience and Jesus being the bread of life and the manner in the wilderness. I mean, it's just like <clears throat> so huge. And so we just know that every time we come around that table, we're anchored in a story. And that's really important to understand. We're not making anything up here. This is not a new invention. We're not like the next cool cutting edge thing. We are, we're part of an ancient people that have been around for thousands of years. And uh, we are entering into that story of this Yahweh and his people who've been grafted in, right? And so their heritage is also our heritage. And when we come around the bread and the cup, we are eating and drinking ourselves into that story and eating and drinking that story into us. And we just know that, yes, we've been liberated from Egypt and from death in Jesus, praise God. But just like Israel, who were grumbling in the desert, wishing they could be back in Egypt because the food was better there, <laughs> right? Um, and then Moses goes up the mountain. It doesn't take him five seconds up there. Well, actually, he was up there for a while, shame. But then he comes down, and Israel have made a golden calf, right? Because they haven't yet got Egypt out of their system. And so too with us, although we've been, we're people of two worlds, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, and yet the, the flesh is dying and we sow to the spirit so that we can live in the spirit and on and on and on and on. And so just how this communion meal, this breaking of the bread is a supernatural thing, but it's also just a very practical formation thing. We are reminding ourselves of the story that we've been liberated out of Egypt and that Egypt is being purged out of us and praise God for that. And then tonight we want to look forward to the future. So we were in the present, we went to the past, now we want to go to the future. And so if the present was the last supper and the past was the Passover supper, today we want to talk about the marriage supper. So Jesus is big on supper. Hey? He likes, he eat, eats and, and drinks his way through the New Testament. And uh, we find the story of the marriage supper uh, in, in Revelation chapter 19, which I'm going to ask us to read in just a second. But just before we get there, there's a few things I need to say about Revelation Again, we don't have time for me to do a deep dive here. If you're interested, again, happy to have the conversation. But it's important that we frame a few things uh, just so that we uh, we have a healthy respect for, for what we're reading here and the kind of literature that we're dealing with. Um, so you may know this. You may not know this. I'm just going to be trying my best to help us here. Okay. Uh, Revelation is this letter written by a guy called John. It may be John the Disciple. Or it may be another um, another guy called John. <laughs> We're not actually sure. A lot of people think John the disciple, but it's actually a little bit up in the air which John wrote this, this letter. If you read uh, Revelation, uh, interesting, it's not Revelations, by the way. So without being ugly about it, you can just correct people and just take the S off, right? So it's Revelation, and it's the Revelation to John. It's not John's Revelation. It's the Revelation that John received uh, from, from God. Okay, and he's on this island of Pat Patmos. Uh, important to understand what the Revelation book is. Uh, so when you read the newspaper, for example, the newspaper is one document, but it has lots of different literary styles in that document. 
So you have the headlines, for example, and then you have the cartoons in the newspaper. I'm assuming everyone knows what newspapers are, although you probably don't because we live in a digital world. But there was once upon a time a paper thing that you opened up and then you would go to different parts, right? Now, when you open up a newspaper, although it's one document, if you read the cartoons in the same way you read the headlines, you're going to get really confused. Because at least in like a madam in a South African context, if you think that what's happening in Madam and Eve is the, the news, you're going to have a problem with how you live in the world. Okay, so even though it's one document, you have to be careful about how you're reading the different pieces in that document, right? So the Bible is just like this. So the Bible is, is actually a library of books, and it has many different literary styles within that one library. And some things are history, other things are metaphor. Uh, the, the Psalms, for example, are poetry and story and narrative. Um, Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It's apocalyptic literature. Now, that word apocalyptic is not the end of the world, <laughs> okay? When we hear apocalyptic, we think apocalypse, like we think Marvel, okay? Like destruction and fire and then the end of the world. That word actually means revealing. It means it's kind of like, I don't know if you were ever little. I had this uh, when I was small. And uh, the lights would go off in my room. And then I would, I would have something off in my room, like a, like a stack of bags or maybe like a coat stand or something. And in my imagination in the shadows, I would look and it would look like a scary monster. Yeah. Or like something outside the window behind the curtains. And then the light plays on the trees and you're seeing the shadow on the curtains and you're like, oh, no, it's like so scary because it's a monster. Maybe none of you were scared, but I was scared when I was little. And then what happens is you go on and you open the curtains and there's a revealing and you can see clearly what you couldn't see before. And because you have a new perspective on it, it changes your experience of the thing. Makes sense. So because uh, there's been a revealing, because the curtains have been opened, you now know that it's not a monster and your experience of that tree outside is different. Makes sense? Just put your hand up if you're tracking with me. I know we're doing a lot of things. Okay, good, good, good. So apocalyptic literature is, an, it's revealing. It's an, it's an unveiling of, of ideas. What this means is we've got to be careful when reading Revelation that we don't read it as if it's a history book because it's not a history book. It's an apocalyptic book, okay? It is similar to like Ezekiel or like Daniel has some apocalyptic things going on there. So we have to kind of hold that in our mind. Also important uh, to understand that, um, I want to make sure I get this right, uh, the, the book of Revelation is not linear as much as it's cyclical, particularly certain parts of it. So the book of Revelation is not like day one, this happened, then day two, this happened, then day three, this happened. Particularly in the middle chunk of it, you will see there, there's the number seven is repeated often. So the seven churches, the seven lampstands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That number being the number of completion and also linked to Sabbath rhythms and creation order. So there's a whole bunch of stuff we could go into there, which we won't. Uh, but in the middle of the passage, you'll see there are seven scrolls, there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls. And these things operate cyclically. And actually, they're kind of like, do you remember Russian dolls? How you would have a big doll, and then you'd open it up, and there's a little doll inside, and then you'd open that one up, and a little doll inside, open that one up. So you'll see when you read it, it's like one flows out of the other. And so what actually what the author of Revelation is doing is he's telling the same story but he's telling it from three different angles. So he's cycling back and he's cycling back and he's cycling back. So he's telling the story of what's going on here, right? Um, so 
it's important to know that because if, we, if we're thinking about it consecutively, linearly, what we're going to try and do is plot this thing on a timeline. <clears throat> but that's not how the structure of the letter is working. So the structure of the letter, because it's apocalyptic, is more metaphorical and it's trying to help us understand the thing. It's trying to pull back the curtain. Uh, also, it's pulling on a whole bunch of Old Testament stories. And so the writer is writing, remember, he's writing to seven actual churches that existed in a time of persecution. So it's code language. So let's imagine that we have some friends, for example, who are part of this community, who are working in a part of the world who are, that is closed. If I wanted to write a letter to encourage them, I wouldn't write a letter with their names and their address saying all kinds of Jesus-y things in blatant English. Why? Because that would get them in trouble. So what I'd rather do is I do things like code that would help them. They would know what I mean and they would understand that. Make sense? So to these churches that he's writing to, they're in a persecuted context. They're in the, There's an oppression happening there. So the, the author of Revelation is writing to these churches and he's using code that they will understand because they're a people of the story. And so the book of Revelation is asking you to kind of open the curtain and have a revelation. What is the revelation of? It's a revelation of Jesus. We see that in the very first verse of the whole book, right? It's not a revelation of how the world is going to end. And I don't want to be too contentious there. There are pieces of it there, and we'll talk about that in a second. But fundamentally, this is a revelation of Jesus that's been given to John. Makes sense? One of the key things that this story is telling, particularly the cyclical thing, but overall, what we could kind of say is um, the book of Revelation is telling us that uh, there will be, there's a time where, where Christian people are going to go, are going to be persecuted and they're going to go through a lot of hardship, but they shouldn't either give up their faith or submit to the authorities, to the empire of the time. So, for example, the number 666, you would have heard of this often, and you would have heard about the mark of the beast, okay? Uh, that has got a whole bunch of ideas attached to it. I would say to you, my reading of the text is the following, that when you actually translate that in the original language, it, it is referring to Nero and Caesar, okay? Because those were specific leaders at a time. And it's not actually saying that Nero or Caesar are the mark of the beast. This is, we can see this clearly in the Septuagint, which is a Latin translation of the same book. That number is 668, not 666, because their alphabet works different, but it's referring to the same thing, Nero or Caesar. And what they're really talking about, and it's it's, it's called the anti-Shema, because you would have noticed that the mark of the beast is on the head and on the hand, right? And the Shema is the law of God on the head and on the hand, right? So what it's saying is, that you as a people of Israel have been called to live in a certain way. There's a spirit of empire in this context, Rome, but previously Babylon, and in the future, anybody else who enters into the spirit of that age. The temptation is you're going to be tempted to come under that and put the influence of that in your mind and in, in your hand and swear your allegiance to that spirit of empire. And if you don't do it, you're going to be persecuted, but don't do it. Hold on, because there's a future coming where Jesus is going to come back for his people and we will be with him in the new heaven and the new earth, right? That's kind of the broad story. Now, there are at least, okay, are we still good? I know there's a lot. It's just important to get context here. We're still good. Give me hands. Cool, cool, cool. 
there are at least four different theological perspectives on the book of Revelation as a whole. I'm going to give you them real, real quick, okay? There's one view called the idealist view. Uh, this was introduced by Oregon and made popular by Augustine. It's a, it's, it, it believes that everything in Revelation is poetic and allegorical, basically. So everything's kind of pointing to the ageless struggle of good against evil. Um, and that's one view. Another view is actually has two kinds of views in it. So you've got the preterist view. You get full preterist and you get partial preterist. Okay, so I just, we're not, you, there's no test on this. I'm just trying to help you understand this is a complex book, okay? <laughs> okay, so you get full preterist and you get partial preterist. The preterist view is that the fall of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD, and a full preterist would say that everything in Revelation has already happened, so that's all in the past. And a partial preterist would say most of Revelation has happened except the new heaven and the new earth that is still to come. Then you get what's called a historicist view, which is that everything is a symbolic representation of human history from the time of when John was writing it all the way to now. So it's kind of like a timeline. And then you get this thing called a futurist view. If you know anything about the tri tribulation or the millennial reign or uh, dispensational theory, all of this falls under the futurist view, which is to say that we can track things that are coming in the future according to timelines and pieces that are, are in Revelation. So all that to say, um, I want to say this humbly, right? There are really, really smart theologians who agree with each one of these. So if you, if you want a futurist view, you can find some really smart theologians who are futurist people. If you want uh, a preterist view, you'll find some incredible, like some church fathers, like big names in the church who are preterist. If you want a historicist view, same. If you want, are you with me? Are you, see, are you see what I'm saying? So all that to say, this is a complex book. And Follower is trying to be a community where we can have different people who have different views around the table. And we can major on the majors and minor on the minors and find commonality in Jesus. Okay, that's the unity of the church that Jesus prayed for when he prayed that we'd all be one, just as him and the Father are one. So I know that when we dip into Revelation, different people are going to have different perspectives and some strong perspectives. And I would say you don't have to necessarily change that perspective. What I would add is to hold up the fact that there are different views on this thing and, and there's legitimacy in them. And sometimes what can happen is we can have a view and we can want to just believe our view that we double down. This is in philosophy terms. It's called setting up a straw man. So we find any argument that doesn't agree with us and we find the weakest version of that argument and we shoot it down so that we can believe what we want to believe. Make sense? And what I'm saying with Revelation is if you give all the voices and perspectives a chance, they're all actually quite compelling. <laughs> <laughs> Which means, I don't know. <laughs> Are you with me? Like, is there going to be a tribulation and a millennial reign? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, is, is she's going to come back and then another? Th I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Here's the one thing I do know that pretty much every view agrees on. Uh, Jesus has come and he's died, right? And he's, ow, the man's died. And not only did he die, he rose again. And in his rising up again, he has purchased for himself a church. And our job is to be ready because Jesus is coming back, friends. 
And when Jesus comes back, everything will change and we will be with him for eternity. That's what pretty much all the views agree on. The pieces in between, how it all works in the middle, I'm not exactly sure, but that's the big overarching story. Is, is that okay? Can we, are we all okay with that? Are we okay with the thumbs up on that one? So with all that in mind, we're now going to read the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. I'm going to highlight to you some freaking cool things that I think are very exciting. And then we're going to talk about how this applies to communion. Okay. Ariel, will you unmute yourself and give us a read? And let's go from uh, verse six uh, through, to, through to verse 10. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen linen sorry bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints then he said to me write blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are true words of god then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you need to give an amen, you can. If you don't yet, you will in a second because it's fire. Okay. Um, <laughs> lots in this passage. We're not going to do all of it. We're going to focus on um, verse 7, really, 6 and 7. So, um, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting. So, first of all, there's a, the tone of this thing. It's, it's not somber, friends. Are you with me? There's a roaring, there's a shouting, like loud peals of thunder um, and like rushing waters. This is, if you've ever been to a rugby game for our South African friends, or like an NFL game for our American friends, or like a Bundesliga for our German friends, uh, this is like multitudes upon multitudes gathering in wild celebration. <laughs> okay, so I want you to know that's the tone. So again, whatever's coming in the future, the tone of it is a freaking party. Okay, it's it's loud, it's boisterous, it is overflow of celebration. And the song that these guys are singing is hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. This is what's coming out. This is coming out of the multitudes. Remember, his blood has been shed to purchase people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. The Mexicans are there. The Spaniards are out there. There's some Portuguese guys going. Then we got the, Afri the Africans are there. Then we got some Vietnamese homies, the South Koreans. There's some guys coming in from China. We got some American, North Americans, some South Americans. We got the Germans, definitely. The Dutch are bringing the sugar and the height. You know, it's like, it's just, there's, there's London people there for sure. 
people and they're bringing umbrellas and it's just like power surging, fire, and they're singing hallelujah, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. <laughs> I know that we can all have bad days, okay? But what we're living into, the future story, is a celebration that you could not imagine in your wildest dreams. Now, um, I want to focus in on verse 7. Okay. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Those are the two things I want us to leave with today. Our Matthew passage. Who's got Matthew 26? And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, okay, okay. Now I've got to keep it together now because I get very excited. Okay. Jesus is at the Last Supper and he's instituting this. Now, here's what we need to know about the Last Supper it's layers, it's donkey and ogre and layers. Ogres are like onions. People are like onions. We've got layers, right? The the communion is layer upon layer upon layer. So when people say, is it about the new covenant and the forgiveness of sin? Yes. And is it about Passover and the Exodus? Yes. And is it pointing forward to the marriage? Yes. And it it's like so loaded. That's the beauty of it, right? So one of the things it's about is Jesus is doing this thing and he's doing it with a future orientation. He's saying, this thing's so amazing, but guys, this is the last time I'm going to do this with you until there's a, there's a time when we're going to eat together in my father's kingdom. Okay. And, and I want you to know that that's what we're looking forward to. So every time you break it, you're remembering that there's a time coming when we'll break it again together, when we'll eat it again, we'll drink of the vine again together, the future orientation. Now, to really understand what's happening here, we have to understand where it, wedding customs in the time of Jesus. So there were three elements to a wedding in the time of Jesus. Three, okay? The first one was the betrothal. The second one was the ceremony. And the third one was the consummation. The betrothal, the ceremony, and the consummation. Okay? Okay, now, hold on to your seats because this is going to bust your mind. Maybe I should not oversell it. It's average. I think it's amazing. Okay. Um, so, uh, can we quickly read who's got John chapter 14, verse two to three, who's got that one? Okay. Have a read for that first, Thomas. In my father's house are many rooms. If, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
and you know the way to where I am going. Okay, so this is so cool. Okay, so in the Jewish custom of the time, the first piece, betrothal, here's how it would work. If you're from South Africa, you understand labola, okay? Similar kind of idea. You would have a bride price, and the bride groom would come to the bride and her family, and they would negotiate a price. A price would be paid for the purchase of the bride. Leave that with you, okay? After the price had been paid and the bride and the family had agreed, what would happen is the bridegroom would offer a cup of wine to the bride and her family. And if they accepted the cup of wine, if they drank of the cup, they were accepting it. And this now became legal. They were now betrothed to be married, what we call engagement except it was legal. It was what Mary and Joseph were doing. They weren't married yet. Remember, they hadn't consummated their marriage. They were betrothed to be married. But then Joseph would have had to have divorced her publicly if he was to separate. Make sense? So this betrothal was a legal thing that happened. And the agreement of it was through this offering of the cup and the receiving of the cup. Just leaving that with you, right? So Jesus is in the, in the final supper. He's giving a cup. This is the cup of the new covenant, and I'm offering it to you, my disciples. We won't drink of this again until we drink of it in my father's house. Then after that, the bridegroom would go away, and this could be like up to a year. And his job would be to do one of two things, to go to his father's house <laughs> and prepare a room for his bride where they could stay together or to make a house for the bride where they could stay together. That was the work of betrothal. So in this time, they were kind of getting to know each other. There was stuff going on. But the, the primary point was that he would go away to prepare a place for her. The language of Jesus in what we just read is so specific and would have been built into the culture and the understanding of the people. Okay, so this was the betrothal process. And remember, this could last up to a year. When, when the husband was ready, so this has been accepted, now the home is ready. When everything's ready to go, the next phase, stage two, kicks in, and this is the ceremony. So the betrothal was in private. The ceremony is in public, okay? So who has got Matthew 25, verse 1 to 13? At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of, five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. 
Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Okay, just hold that, just hold that. Uh, who's got 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15 to 18? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, who's got uh, Ephesians 5? Who's got Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she be holy and without blemish. Okay, so now here's what I want you to see. So hold all these different thoughts in your mind. The second element of a he, of uh, of the marriage ceremony was the was the was the ceremony, right? So betrothal, then ceremony. So what would happen is when the home is ready, the bridegroom would come with a whole bunch of his friends, and he would come to the house of the bride to fetch the bride. And if it was nighttime, they would come with a whole bunch of torches. And then when the bride was ready, he would take her out of the house. And then he would take her to his house uh, where there was a, a large party waiting to, to be ready. And that takes us to the third element. So the ceremony was a big thing. They would literally party through town. They would dance. If you've ever been to a Zulu wedding, it's this kind of thing, actually. It's, uh, I went to a Zulu wedding recently with my friend and there's like a whole crew of people and they come and they dance and they dance up to the threshold of the property. Then they fetch the wife. And then the wife with all the people, they all dance back to the bridegroom's place where a whole ceremony then takes place. This is what was happening in Jewish culture. So the bridegroom would come after this year or so of betrothal preparation to fetch the bride, <laughs> the bride in her family. Can you see what Jesus is pointing out here? When he's saying, he's using the language, they're in my father's house in many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Then he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's saying there's a time coming when the bridegroom's coming to fetch the bride. So be ready. And if you go back to the Revelation passage in 19, it says, the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's why they're worshiping because the bride is ready. The bride, this church that Jesus has come for. And then in Ephesians, we see that he's made her ready by his own sanctification. And in Thessalonians, it's like this picture of this Jesus coming to fetch his church and this church being made holy. And so there's this picture of a future hope of being fetched, making the bride ready for that collection. Can you see it? Now, this takes us to the final one, which is the consummation which is what we're reading about in, in Revelation 19. So the ceremony would end once they all get to the house, 
they would end with this massive feast. And this massive feast would last five to seven days. Um, and then there would be this big celebration with the whole community. And there was no honeymoon. After the feast, they would go into either the room prepared in the father's house or the house that they had prepared. And there they would consummate the marriage and the marriage would be final. Okay. And then they would, after the consummation, after the feast, they would then live together in the house as, as one. <laughs> okay. So there is this thread that is running not only through communion, but through the whole New Testament gospel story, through the story of Israel, through the teachings of Jesus, where he's giving winks and nudges and nods to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see about his intentions for his people. Right now, the reason that he's writing this, even in Thessalonians, we say it said these things are coming to pass. So encourage one another with this. Make sense. And in the book of Revelation, these guys are being persecuted. And the temptation is to take the mark of the beast, to subject themselves to the ideology of empire, to become to forfeit Jesus and give themselves as citizens of Rome so that it becomes easier for them. And the writer of Rome, of Revelation, of Thessalonians, of the Gospels, is saying, no, 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 don't do it, because the bride's coming, the bridegroom is coming back for his bride, because there's a, there's a wedding supper, a marriage supper of the Lamb that you can look forward to. And if you will anchor your hope in that future, it will strengthen you in the present to endure whatever you have to endure, whatever you have to go through. What does this mean for communion? Uh, when we break the bread and drink the cup, we do it, oh, so many things because it's so loaded. It's such a beautiful thing. So we do celebrate the new covenant and we do celebrate the blood of Jesus on the cross. And we do, we celebrate all these things. But what we're also doing is we're receiving the betrothal cup of Jesus. <laughs> and we're saying yes to that covenant. We're saying, yes, Lord, we will wait for you. And where are we now in the story? We're waiting for the ceremony. And just like those brides, those who were waiting, those virgins in the night who were waiting, and some of them had to leave because their oil ran out. We don't want to be those people. We want to be a bride ready for the bridegroom. That's what we want to be. And so every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're reminding ourselves of a future hope that's on its way. We're anchoring ourselves, anchoring ourselves into that future expectation so that when it gets hard in the present, we can endure through the present because we know that the bridegroom is on his way, right? And we can be a, we can be a bride made ready for the bridegroom by becoming holy, by being washed with the word of Jesus, by being filled with the spirit of God. Can you see the Thessalonians and the Ephesians and basically the Bible? <laughs> okay. So this is so exciting because Every time we break bread together, this is why the early church is so powerful, because every time they came around that meal and they broke bread daily in their homes, every time they were meeting and they were breaking this bread and they were drinking of this cup and they were remembering, man, something's on its way. There's a, there's a future hope to look forward to. So even if I have to be sewn into an animal skin today and catapulted over the walls of the Colosseum and martyred for my faith, I can, I can do that because these light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the eternal glory that it's on its way when the bridegroom comes to fetch the bride. Make sense? And so, so that's, we, we, we reprogram our minds. We update our iOS 
Every time we're tempted to take the mark of the beast, guys. And again, remember, this is, I don't want to get too contentious here, but this is, in my conviction at least, this is not the chip in your hand or any of those kinds of things. This is the degree to which you buy into the spirit of empire. Uh, and that has looked historically like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans. And now name your name your nation, name your secular worldview, name the spirit of empire that you're putting on your head and putting on your arm and shaping your life around so that life can be a bit easier in this world. That's what it means for us to take the mark of the beast, right? And, and Revelation is saying, don't do it. And every time we come around the table, we're remembering that that's the future hope, that we're that people. We're, our greatest expectation is the great party of heaven. When Let's go back to that passage, right? Like uh, Revelation 19, when we get to sing with the multitudes, a hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We get to sing that song. And in, and in Revelation 21, you know, the new heaven and the new earth, that's our future home. That's where we're going. So uh, I hope that gets you really excited. <laughs> it gets me really excited. And I hope uh, that it changes the way you engage with communion. I hope that every time you get around the table, every time you break the bread and say yes with the cup, right? You receive the betrothal offer. That's so powerful for me, guys. I'm never going to drink that cup again the same. Um, whenever I take that cup and I say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to faithfully wait for you before you come fetch me, right? I am reorienting my heart and I'm saying no to empire and yes to kingdom. And I am anchoring myself in a future destination that changes everything about my present reality. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Well, I I hope that that was as encouraging and inspiring for you to listen to as it was for me to teach. And even now, after the fact, as I listen back to it to edit it, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after having taught it. Um, I'm so inspired and so encouraged again in my spirit to remember that this is not our home. Like blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, whose hearts are the highways to Zion. And, uh, you know, just my own testimony, I can say that in the last couple of weeks, the fullness of life and just personal things, there's a, the, the world has a way of pulling us down by its center of gravity. And we, we lose sight of um, the eternal narrative, the eternal story that we're a part of. And just listening back to this just reminded me, man, that, that's my story. And I want to be about that thing. I want to be a bride made ready. Um, and I'm okay to say that I'm comfortable enough in my masculinity, right? I want to be a bride made ready for Jesus. I want to be part of that church. And so, man, I, I just pray that that encourages you. And even in your practice of communion, that maybe that puts a new filter and a new lens on the way that you're engaging with it. Um, this is the last of our three-part series on communion. It gives you just a taste of what a focus is like, and uh, I hope that uh, you've been encouraged by it. If you would like to get more into this material, if you'd like to see the practices that were attached to each one of these teachings, you can go to uh, wearefollower.com, click on the communion focus, and we'll have all the PDFs and even the, some of the Zoom videos available for you there to watch and to download for yourself and to use 
and we just hope that that blesses you. Um, it's ideally to be used within a group context, a small group space, but you can use it in your own space as well. Um, however, however best helps you in your walk with Jesus. Um, thank you guys. Always so good to be able to be in your ears. Huge honor and don't take it lightly. And looking forward to the next time that we get together on the follower podcast to learn and practice the way of Jesus together. That's all for this episode of the Follower Podcast. If you found it helpful or inspiring, please consider sharing it and leaving a review on your podcast platform to help us connect with more people around the world. If you would like to support the ministry of Follower with a monthly contribution or one-off donation, you can visit www.wearefollower.com forward slash support. And to say thank you, we'll send you a free copy of Live the Story, an ebook that helps you learn to share your faith with others. Until next time, may you follow Jesus to the depths of his heart as he helps you share his love wherever you go. From the ground beneath your feet to the very end of the earth.